0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs at the Pratt Library, and I'm sort of standing in for Dr. Carla Hayden, our CEO, this evening because uh, she's outside of the city this evening, and and she's really sorry she couldn't be here. She's she's been involved with um, Jean Thompson in this project, and she's. Um, She's very excited about it, and, and so I'm, I'm the substitute this evening. Um, this is a very special <laughs> evening for us. We're celebrating the opening of this um, wonderful exhibit, Keeping It Real, um, an exhibit of items from the collection of Jean Thompson. Um, and it's also, in case you didn't see the, the cake on the table out there, this is Jean Thompson's birthday. Yeah. So. <laughs> So so we're happy that you all came out to celebrate her birthday and celebrate the opening of the collection. Um, As many of you probably know, for more than 25 years, Jean has been researching and acquiring items that she calls pieces of the dream. Documents, photos, books, and objects that illustrate and illuminate the African-American experience from the Civil War to the present. We are honored that Jean has chosen to show pieces from her collection with us in this exciting new exhibit. And I hope that you will go out and tell everyone the exhibit is going to be here through March. And um, it's a long time, and and we hope that you will come back and and bring your friends so that they can see it as well. Um, The exhibit is also, and this is... Even more important, um, is a way for us to announce and celebrate the fact that Jean has decided to donate selected items to the African American Department of the Pratt Library. I get goosebumps. (laughs) I might cry. (laughs) Um, We are so grateful for this gift, Jean. And I'm saying this on behalf of Dr. Hayden and our Board of Trustees and directors, the Pratt Library staff, because um, your treasures will have a permanent home here in Baltimore. And we will take good care of them. (laughs) Um, um, I also want to um, introduce a couple of our staff members who uh, have been involved with... um, the exhibit, Jack Young, who is back there sitting on the table. Um, Jack is our uh, art director, graphic artist extraordinaire, and he has worked with Gene very closely on creating this exhibit. And um, Vivian Fisher, um, the Af- manager of the African-American department. Um, Vivian is one of the Pratt staff members who will be responsible for um, maintaining and caring for your collection. Um, Jean has um, laryngitis, <laughs> and I really wanted her to want her to come up and say something. So I'm going to step back and let you. And then she has to spend three days at the book festival. <laughs> uh, <coughs>
1: I'm going to say thank you. Thank you for the microphone. <laughs> Otherwise, you would not hear me. I, I want to thank... Sorry. Thank uh, okay, Jack. Thank you. I want to... First, I want to thank all of you for coming. Because when you're a collector, sometimes it's a lonely pursuit. It's you and your books and your your things and your dust and you're in your, your little world. And... Um, as I have told Jack and and also Carla Hayden. Doctor Hayden, you know, sometimes I go by the closets in my home and I I honestly I hear gospel choir singing and I hear people talking and it I know they don't want to be in my closet. They they really want to be free. <laughs> and the way the proper way to set them free is to ensure that they're preserved, that those memories of our ancestors the things they used, the things they touched, the the history that today we can hold in our hands. Those things are placed in a place where children, students, researchers, family historians, and others can use them. And I know that some of you in this room are collectors. Uh, We are are, uh, an obsessed lot. Some people say we're a little crazy. I think my husband has said that more than once. But he's been very supportive, so I want to thank him as well. Um, far far too much of my disposable income has been spent on stuff <laughs> <laughs> over the years, and I know you know what that's like. Uh, the sickness of collecting uh, is one of those things where you know you'll go out of your way to find a nine dollar haircut so that you can spend a hundred dollars on the next book, <laughs> and that's just the way it is because you, when you see these things, you know that if you don't buy it at that moment, it might be lost forever. And I feel so much that it's my job to be a caretaker of history. I don't want to be a museum. I don't want to be one of those people who is a speculator who does it for money. That's never why I was involved. I was involved because my mother before me, my mother's a genealogist, an, an African-American specialist. And um, my first black history teacher, Mark Redley Thomas, my first mentor, who was Mamie Clayton, the late Mamie Clayton of Los Angeles. Uh, when I was in college, I met her through Mark. She took me into her garage, which was packed from floor to ceiling with black historical papers, documents, films, and I'm talking about old-fashioned film. And she kept it in her garage. And I was a student at USC at the time, and I asked her if I could borrow some things to put in the display cases at USC. And I was working as a student, a work-study student in the library there. And she went and filled my little Toyota Corolla all the way with first edition books by African-American authors. There were about 100 books. And uh, there was a Frederick Douglass. There was a Phyllis Wheatley. They were all there. And she just piled them up in my car, and she said, you can have them for 30 days. And I I drove the car straight to USC to the librarian. And I said, look what I've got. (laughs) And he said, well, I have this great little room with Cases, but there are no locks on the doors. So whenever the exhibits open, you have to be there. And for 30 days, I sat in that room every day. When I wasn't in class, I would open the door so that people could come and see and maybe understand what I saw, which is you know all of our history right there, where you could actually see it, touch it, read it, and, and understand that we're standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us. And uh, and uh, maybe it's passed on now. And her her son has tried to create a museum from her things, and others have tried to carry it on um, in Los Angeles. But she's the one who really gave me the bug, and I've and and I've had that bug ever since. And um, and I know that when I pass on, I don't want there to be any worry about. Where that stuff's gonna go? I also don't want to be one of those people, you know. They find them dead underneath a pile of books. Over <laughs> overcollected? Uh, so I blame Jack Lapidus There, he's sitting right there. When when I adopted my son, my husband and I adopted a little boy here in Baltimore. He's uh he was four and a half at the time, and under the law here, you have to. Create a will when you do that. You have to provide for your child. And at the time, Jack said, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this collection? You have to make a plan. And I said, well, you know, they're talking about building a museum called the Reginald Lewis. I don't know if it's, at the time, it wasn't there yet. It was just a dream. I said, well, you know, there's the Schomburg. There are a few other places. There's the Schoenberg Douglas. There are lots of places. Maybe they'll want it. Maybe they won't. And so I started hunting around, and I actually went to the Schaumburg, and they said the only way they could handle another collection would be if it came with a grant money and an archivist. They just can't take any more unless you can provide for it. And museums today and libraries today, they can't take it all. They want to take the pieces that help enhance your learning here in your town and enhance their collections. So anyway, I went back to Jack, and I said, okay, Jack, I, I wanted to stay in the city. The things that belong to Baltimore need to stay in Baltimore. What should I do? And he told me it was the very same year that Mr. Eddie Brown was donating money to the Pratt to preserve and expand the African-American room. And Vivian, you weren't here yet. You were coming. You didn't know that, but you were, you were on your way here for a reason at that time. Um, At the time, so many people at the Pratt had helped me. Eva Slezak was an enormous resource to me. So Jack said, well, you know, Eddie's providing for the library here, and, you know, they could use your stuff. (laughs) And so I said, all right, you talk me into it, and then he introduced me to Mr. Brown. And I have his autograph. It's not on the wall out there because I didn't want to embarrass him if he came by. (laughs) But I got his autograph, too. I thought, you know, one day somebody's going to want to have that. And um, so I I was convinced that the Pratt would be able to take care of it and that there would be librarians here so that when your children and your grandchildren come and they say, well, I want to know more about my history here in the city, that if any pieces that I have can enhance that, they will be here. And those pieces that don't go here, We're going to next meet with the Reginald Lewis and see if there are Maryland pieces that belong there. And I know some of you have read the stories about the Lewis and that they're in financial trouble. We should do all that we can as a community to try to help them because that is an enormous resource. And it just happens that the Smithsonian is also building a museum of African-American culture and history. And I have talked to the Smithsonian's curators, and they're going to look at the collection as well. So I don't mind splitting it up. You'll meet lots of people who don't want to split up their collections. But I I say that the pieces need to go home, wherever is the proper home. That's where they need to go. So when they come out of my closet, Judy, I know that they will have a proper home here at the Pratt. So I thank you. I thank Dr. Hayden. I thank you, Jack, who made the most beautiful exhibit wall out there. Oh, my goodness. I, I want to thank Vivian because I know that we'll be talking a lot as we go through the inventory. And I want to thank all of you. My, my family is here. If everybody related to me, would you please stand up? There's stand up? Stand up. They're all here. I am so blessed also to have here today a young lady who's been my assistant helping me to archive. And another lady who is here is helping me. So I, I want to acknowledge the work of Raven Brown. Stand up, Raven. And Faye Houston, who is going to be helping me. Thank you, Raven. Faye is a retired librarian from this library, and she has offered to come to my house and help me as I build the inventory so that it can be properly. Um, reviewed by the curators of the different institutions. So I'm going to stop, stop talking now because the <laughs> voice is going. And I want to again um, wish you to enjoy it, get out and see it, tell your friends, hey, it's free, the doors <laughs> open, you know, history's right here, and then go downstairs and check out a book that's about history. And it's all free. And it's all free. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Thank you.
0: So when we were talking about tonight, and um, besides having food and drink and the exhibit, um, Jean recommended, um, as her first choice, someone to speak and to talk to you about um, African-American history, and that is Hari Jones from the African-American Civil War Museum in D.C. He is a retired, Harry Jones is a retired U.S. Marine Corps veteran, whose extensive research has made him a sought-after speaker and consultant. He has advised many museums, the NBC television show, Who Do You Think You Are?, the National Park Service, PBS documentaries, and other organizations about African-American military service throughout history. He is currently the assistant director and curator of the African-American Civil War Museum, in Washington. And his topic this evening, Well, I don't know, it says the Glorious March to Liberty (laughs) here, but uh, maybe you've changed your title. Anyway, please welcome Hari Jones.
2: (laughs) Good evening. It is a privilege to be here and thank you so much, Jean, for requesting me to tell or to help tell an important American story. Major Martin Delaney wrote, quote, The day shall yet come when the despised, neglected American patriot, in spite of American prejudice, shall rise superior to the spirit that would degrade it and find its place on the records of merit and fame, close quote. In telling the story of African-Americans and their service in the Civil War, their fight for freedom, their glorious march to liberty, we're telling the story of American patriots. 1.1 miles north of the White House on Vermont Avenue Northwest, we have a memorial, the African-American Civil War Memorial. That memorial was dedicated on July 18, 1998. Our statue is called the Spirit of Freedom, sculpted by Ed Hamilton out of Louisville, Kentucky. On the walls behind our statue, we have the 209,145 names of all the soldiers who were officially brought into the Bureau of United States Colored Troops. Separate Department of the U.S. Army, established in the middle of the Civil War, May 22, 1863. We get all of our names from official service records held at the National Archives in Washington. So every name on our wall is backed by an official service record. And the number, 209,145, represents 10% of the U.S. or Northern Army during the Civil War. On our statue, we have a sailor. Yet we have no sailors' names on our Wall of Honor. The U.S. Navy during the Civil War was integrated, making it rather difficult to identify the men of African descent that served in the U.S. or Northern Navy. We do know, however, from Department of Navy reports that approximately 25% of the U.S. and Northern Navy was comprised of men of African descent. Let's examine these numbers. 10% of the Northern Army, 25% of the Northern Navy comprised of African Americans. According to the U.S. Census, 1860, African Americans only made up 1% of the Northern population. Yet 10 percent of the Northern Army, 25 percent of the Northern Navy, very clear overrepresentation. And one would think with this clear overrepresentation that the story of these soldiers and sailors would have been an integral part of that master narrative of the Civil War presented in our schools over the last 100 years. Now one would think that, but that is not true. The story of these soldiers and sailors has been one of the best-kept secrets in American history, intentionally suppressed early in mid-20th century, one of the best examples of the complete the complete suppression of this story. 1944, in movie theaters across this country, you could have seen a film produced by the U.S. government entitled The Negro Soldier on the advertisement poster that is the heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Lewis. The film was directed by Frank Capra, arguably the top director in Hollywood at the time. In the film The Negro Soldier, they covered African-American military service in this country from the 1770s, the Revolutionary War, to the 1940s, World War II, mentioned African-American involvement in every war in the nation's history during that period except the Civil War. There was no mention, no image of a single soldier or sailor 10% of the Army, 25% of the Navy, and during the Civil War, 25 African Americans had earned the highest honor bestowed on American military personnel for acts of courage in combat, the Medal of Honor, also known as the Congressional Medal of Honor. Yet not a single one of those American heroes were mentioned in a film expressly about them produced by the U.S. government, a completely suppressed story. So why the complete suppression of this story in this 1944 government-produced film entitled The Negro Soldier? Well, the film reflected what was being taught in the best schools in this country and what was being taught, that the American Negroes had done little or nothing to free themselves. Also, what was being taught and still taught in many schools across this country today is that on January 1, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves by simply issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. That is an oversimplification of what happened. And to teach young scholars that President Lincoln freed the slaves by simply issuing the Emancipation Proclamation is to mislead young scholars into believing that African Americans did little or nothing to free themselves. The true story is the story of a glorious march to liberty, the story of a disenfranchised enslaved population that answered a cry for help from the federal government and by helping to save the Union and enforcing enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation. They freed themselves and their own families. Their story has been one of the best-kept secrets in American history. It is the story of a glorious march to liberty, a story of American patriots. Dr. John S. Rock was born in Salem, New Jersey in 1825. Dr. Rock was an 1852 graduate of the American Medical College in Philadelphia. Dr. Rock was a physician, a dentist, a school teacher, and the first African American lawyer to be admitted to the bar of the U.S. Supreme Court. Dr. Rock gave a speech in Boston on March 5, 1858. The occasion was the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. March 5, 1770, Crispus Atticus, a man of African descent, was the first to lose his life in what became the American Revolution. I would like you to also take note of the fact that Dr. Rock's speech, delivered on March 5, 1858, was delivered three years, one month, and eight days before the Civil War begins. And Dr. Rock said, and I quote, Sooner or later, the clashing of arms will be heard in this country, and the black men's services will be needed. 150,000 freemen capable of bearing arms, and not all cowards and fools, and three-quarter of a million slaves, wild with the enthusiasm caused by the dawn of the glorious opportunity of being able to strike a genuine blow for freedom, will be a power which the white men will be bound to respect. Will the blacks fight? Of course they will. Close quote. Three years before the Civil War begins, America's African descent population is clearly preparing for a clashing of arms, a civil war that they believe will give them a genuine opportunity to strike a blow for liberty. When the Civil War begins, on April 12, 1861, with the firing on Fort Sumter, Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, there were nearly 4 million Americans of African descent claimed as property held as slaves. There were 34 states in the Union. Slavery was legal in 15 of those 34 states. And by the summer of 1861, 11 of the 15 slaveholding states had declared their independence from the United States, seceded from the Union, forming what they call the Confederate States of America, establishing as their capital, Richmond, Virginia. In Washington, in a special session of Congress in July 1861, Congress passed a joint resolution stating why the federal government, why the U.S. government was going to war. It read, to maintain the supremacy of the Constitution and to preserve the Union and not to overthrow or interfere with slavery. President Lincoln affirmed this resolution. The federal objective in the Civil War was clear. The war was being fought to preserve the Union, not to end the tyranny of slavery. The paramount objective, to preserve the Union. President Lincoln had also called for 75,000 volunteer soldiers from the states for the purpose of preserving the Union. But African Americans not, could not answer that call for volunteer soldiers because it was illegal in 1861 for African Americans to join the Federal Army. It had been illegal since 1792 when Congress passed the United States Volunteer Militia Act of 1792 and President George Washington signed that legislation into law restricting enlistment into the army to, quote, able-bodied white males, close quote. Emphasis here is that it was the law that prohibited African Americans from joining the federal army. So Abraham Lincoln and the executive branch of government, that law enforcement branch of government, had no legal authority to bring African Americans into the army in 1861. The executive branch does not make the laws. The legislative branch makes the laws. It would take an act of Congress for men of African descent to be legally brought into the army during the Civil War. Some men of African descent, however, would volunteer and serve, some without even being paid. Like Nicholas Biddle, who's of note here in, in, um, in Baltimore, as he is coming in with the Washington Artillerist out of... Uh, Pennsylvania, and he's marching through, going to the Washington defenses, and he is hit in the head with a brick here on, uh, in, Wat- in uh, Baltimore. Considered the first casualty of the Civil War, and held in high esteem by the men who had gone to fight legally in the Union Army. Alan Pinkerton, the famed railroad detective and head of Se- Lincoln's Secret Service in the first 18 months of the war, observed, quote, Although as yet prevented from taking up arms in defense of their rights, these colored men had banded themselves together to further the cause of freedom, close quote. Pinkerton would refer to these colored men, or more appropriately, these men and women of African descent who had banded themselves together to further the cause of freedom, as members of a secret organization, a national organization called the Loyal League. It was also known as the Legal League. In the Mississippi Valley, it was known as Lincoln's Legal Loyal League, or the 4Ls. This secret African-American organization would become the single most important source of tactical and strategic intelligence during the Civil War. It would provide the top spies in the Civil War. And in the state of Maryland, the sale of the Loyal League of the 4Ls was considered one of the most efficient in the whole network. This secret organization would provide the most prolific recruiters of African-Americans for the Union war effort. This secret African-American organization had its, its express goal, to end the tyranny of slavery in league with the Constitution. Indeed, members of this organization, early on in its history, men like Prince Hall, Reverend Absalom Jones, George Lawrence, would actually say that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were divine instruments of goodness, and if the great houses of this nation did not set the captives free, they would be cursed by God, and this curse that they would speak of, as clearly stated in David Walker's appeal in 1829, was there would be a clashing of arms, a civil war, a parting of a red sea of blood through which the captives would pass to be free. The Loyal League believed that in league with the Constitution, they would be given an opportunity to strike a blow for liberty to end the tyranny of slavery. And they understood that under the Constitution of the United States, Abraham Lincoln in the executive branch of government had no legal authority to declare free slaves. The executive branch does not make the laws. They understood this very well. And they also believed that Lincoln was on the side of emancipation. That's what the African-American leaders in 1861 believed, as evidenced in this Frederick Douglass article that appeared in his monthly in August of 1861, in which Douglass begins by saying, we are happy to believe. Then he says, indeed, we have very good evidence to the fact. That the administration in Washington, the Lincoln administration, notwithstanding appearances, stands ready to enforce a policy in the rebellious states that will eventually abolish slavery in those rebellious states, quote, just as soon as the people required, close quote. Now, what does Frederick Douglass mean by as soon as the people required? Well, the voice of the people in our federal government is Congress. As soon as Congress requires, as soon as Congress changed the laws, Douglas would go on in this article to encourage his readers to lobby Congress, send petitions to your congressmen, go to Washington if you can, meet with your congressmen to get the laws changed. But Douglas and Lincoln <laughs> did not believe that Congress would change these laws until it became, quote, an indispensable military necessity, close quote. In other words, when the majority in Congress understood that in order to accomplish the paramount objective of the war to preserve the Union, they needed the help of African-Americans. So the question is, when did the majority in Congress come to an understanding that in order to preserve the Union, they needed the help of African-Americans? Well, in the spring of 1862, Union General George McClellan would assemble arguably the best trained and best equipped army in the world. It was certainly the largest army in the Western Hemisphere. McClellan would train his army in the Washington area. He would take his army down to the Virginia Peninsula, march it up the Virginia Peninsula, and by the first day of June 1862, McClellan's army, the largest army in the Western Hemisphere, was within 10 miles of the rebel capital, Richmond, Virginia. On that same day, June 1st, 1862, General Robert E. Lee took command of the rebel forces in defense of Richmond. General Lee's army was less than half the size of General McClellan's army. But Lee was able to deceive McClellan into believing that his army was four times its actual size. Lee was able to deceive McClellan into believing that wooden cannons, referred to as Quaker guns, were indeed real cannons. Now, they were called Quaker guns because they were ultimately peaceful and friendly guns. (laughs) They were simply logs and could not fire anything. But Lee was able to deceive McClellan into believing they were real cannons. Lee deceived and outmaneuvered McClellan. And in the first week of July 1862, word gets to Washington that McClellan's army, the largest army in the Western Hemisphere, is in full retreat, suffering a humiliating defeat. And later that July, Congress would pass the Militia Act of 1862, granting President Lincoln the authority to employ persons of African descent in any military capacity for which he saw fit. This legislation, born of military necessity, was on President Lincoln's desk for signature on July 17, 1862. Another important piece of legislation was on President Lincoln's desk that day. It is referred to as the Second Confiscation Act. And in Section 6 of the Second Confiscation Act, Congress gave the president the authority to seize to confiscate all property of persons in states in rebellion. Now, those held as slaves were claimed as property. President Lincoln is being given the authority by Congress to confiscate, to take all slaves in states in rebellion. In Section 9 of the Second Confiscation Act, Congress declared forever free all persons held as slaves by supporters of the rebellion. President Lincoln signed both these pieces of legislation into law on the 17th of July, 1862. He then had the legal authority to bring men of descent into the Federal Army to confiscate to take all slaves in states in rebellion and to declare them free. Five days later, July 22nd, 1862, President Lincoln met with his cabinet. He informed his cabinet members that he was ready to issue an Emancipation Proclamation immediately, acting on the authority that Congress had given him. He gave a draft of his proclamation to his cabinet members and asked for their advice. One of his cabinet members, Secretary of State William Seward, advised President Lincoln not to issue the Emancipation Proclamation at that time in July of 1862. Now, Secretary Seward was an abolitionist out of New York. He supported universal emancipation. He was Harriet Tubman's benefactor that financed the Underground Railroad. Indeed, he himself had assisted some on escaping along the Underground Railroad. Yet in July of 1862, he advises President Lincoln not to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Why? Well, Seward is very concerned about the upcoming elections, 62 elections. In his home state of New York, Horatio Seymour, an anti war, pro slavery Democrat, is the apparent leader in the campaign for governor of New York. In the congressional elections, there is much to be, there's a great deal of concern in those lower northern states. And Seward tells the president, We've just suffered the greatest disasters of the war. And if you issue this proclamation now, after those humiliating defeats, quote, it will be viewed in the mind of the people as the last measure of an exhausted government, a cry for help, the government stretching out its hands unto Ethiopia instead of Ethiopia stretching out her hands unto the government, close quote. In the the 19th century, Ethiopia was commonly used to refer to African-Americans. Secretary Seward is telling the president that he is concerned, he fears, that the voters might view the Emancipation Proclamation as a cry for help to African Americans. And why? Because the Emancipation Proclamation was a cry for help to African Americans. (laughs) Secretary Seward tells the president that we should wait for a military success, a victory on the battlefield that will mass, that would cover up this cry for help. President Lincoln, referring to the proclamation as a practical war measure to be decided on according to its advantages and disadvantages in preserving the Union and suppressing the rebellion, considers Secretary Seward's advice wise advice. Now, a prudent president takes wise advice. Lincoln waited to claim his victory. He would claim his victory on the bloodiest day in American history. Not the bloodiest battle in American history, but the bloodiest day in American history. September 17, 1862. A battle about 85 miles northwest of Washington near Sharpsburg, Maryland. Officially it is called the Battle of Antietam. In 12 hours, 22,000 casualties. Well, over half of those 22,000 casualties were Union soldiers, Lincoln soldiers, but the rebels under Robert E. Lee withdrew from the battlefield. So the Union Army under George McClellan claimed victory. And five days later, September 22, 1862, with his victory in hand, President Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, in which he warned the states in rebellion that if they did not lay down their arms and return to the Union in the next 100 days, he was going to declare free their slaves on January 1863. Well, the rebels did not believe that Lincoln and the Union Army could make good this threat because they believed they were winning the war. They called the Battle of Antietam the Battle of Sharpsburg and a draw, not a defeat. Viewed as a part of a larger military campaign where General Lee's army under Stonewall Jackson, General Thomas J. Jackson, had captured Harpers Ferry. If you have a victory and a tie, you'd call it a victory. (laughs) And that's exactly what the Confederacy did. But the northern press focused exclusively on that battle in the Sharpsburg, calling it the Battle of Antietam and a Union victory, giving President Lincoln, and more specifically, the Republican candidates in the 1862 congressional elections some political cover. I do want to point out that Horatio Seymour, the pro-slavery, anti-war Democrat, did win the governorship of New York. The Republicans lost 21 seats in the House of Representatives. Those would be the 21 votes they needed to pass the 13th Amendment. However, the Republicans retained the majority in the House and in the Senate in the 1862 congressional elections. So the decision by President Lincoln to wait for a military success before issuing his Emancipation Proclamation was indeed a prudent political decision. Frederick Douglass would write in his monthly in October 1861, correction, October 1862, that in order for the Emancipation Proclamation to free any slaves, two conditions had to be met. The first condition was that the states in rebellion still had to be in rebellion as of January 1, 1863. And the second condition was that the rebellion had to be suppressed. African Americans in late 1862, they were not under the impression that the Emancipation Proclamation was going to free the slaves on January 1, 1863. They understood very well that in order for the Emancipation Proclamation to free any slaves, the Union had to be preserved. The rebellion had to be suppressed. Military victory had to be achieved. They understood that the Emancipation Proclamation had to be enforced. So on watch night, December 31st, 1862, in churches in the north, African-American churches in the north, in secret locations in the south, often referred to as praying trees, African-Americans did not gather together, and pray for, watch for, the day of Jubilee, January 1, 1863, when all the slaves would be set free. They were praying for, they were watching for, the day of Jubilee, January 1, 1863, when it would become legal for them to strike a blow for liberty in league with the Constitution of the United States. This was a day of celebration because Prince Hall had forecasted such a day. This was a day of celebration because... Absalom Jones had forecasted such a day. George Lawrence had forecasted such a day. Mariah Stewart had forecasted such a day. This was a day of jubilee because the elders had counseled that if you stand ready, your opportunity would come and league with the Constitution of the United States. On January 1, 1863, President Lincoln issued the final Emancipation Proclamation as, quote, a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion. Close quote. I would like you to pay close attention to the president's language within the Emancipation Proclamation. He did not pretend that this was simply a moral or humanitarian document. He is explicit. He's clear. He calls it a fit and necessary war measure for what? For preserving the union, for accomplishing the paramount objective of the war. And in this fit and necessary war measure for preserving the union, President Lincoln declared forever free. All persons held as slaves in the ten states Not in the 15 slave-holding states, but in the 10 states that were at war with the United States for their independence on January 1, 1863. In the five slave-holding states that accepted Abraham Lincoln as president federal authority, the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply because Congress did not give the president the authority to seize property to confiscate slaves and declared them free in states that were loyal to the Union, only in states in rebellion, only in states that had to be brought back in the Union by military conquest. But the army needed help. In the Emancipation Proclamation, it's where President Lincoln issued his public order to his field commanders to receive men of African descent into all armed services of the United States. This cry for help is so well-masked, so well-hidden, that in the 21st century, we still have many teachers across this country teaching, President Lincoln freed the slaves on January 1, 1863. No, he did not. He declared free slaves in states that had to be brought back in the Union by military conquest. The proclamation had to be enforced. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, would tell the Confederate legislature in July, correction, January of 1863 that the Emancipation Proclamation was, quote, an authentic statement by the government of the United States of its inability to subjugate the South by force of arms," close quote. Indeed, President Lincoln would write to the governor of Tennessee, the military governor of Tennessee, Andrew Johnson, and he would tell Andrew Johnson that the bare sight of 50,000 armed and drilled black soldiers upon the banks of the Mississippi would end the rebellion at once. Lincoln is excited about this authority to bring African-Americans into the Federal Army. Lincoln believes that with African-American soldiers, he can bring the contest so, to an end sooner than later. He believes that with 50,000 of them on the Mississippi, they can bring the contest to an end at once. Active recruiting begins in 1863. The first regiments raised were in Louisiana, actually in 1862. South Carolina, 1862. Kansas, 1862 fall of 1862. In the north, or let's say more accurately because Kansas is in the north, in New England, the first regiment would be the 54th Massachusetts. In January of 1863 is when they would begin their organization for recruiting. But that first regiment was from down in Louisiana, and it was Benjamin Butler, the hero of Maryland. The hero of Maryland. Maryland. General Benjamin Butler, he would raise the 1st Regiment, and Butler, when he observed them drilling, he would say of these African descent soldiers that better soldiers never shouldered a musket. He also wrote, quote, I observed a very remarkable trait about them. They learned to handle arms and to march more easily than intelligent white men. My drill master could teach a regiment of Negroes that much more of the art of war sooner than he could have taught the same number of students from Harvard or Yale, close quote. So in 62, it is very clear to the generals that African Americans are making good soldiers. I, I love another I- I- another love another analogy here. It's very clear to the generals that African Americans are making good football players. <laughs> <laughs> They're good athletes. They understand the scheme. They can read the, uh, the opponent's offenses and defenses and make adjustments. They make good football players. They make good soldiers. That's early on. And there's an organization that Loyal League had a headquarters in Chicago in 1863 where Martin Delaney was the lead recruiting officer. John Jones, a leading African-American in Illinois, would be the owner of the office building, Would really the logistics officer, if you will, of the Loyal League, and Delaney is really the operations officer of the Loyal League. And Delaney would write a letter to the War Department and tell Secretary Stanton Quote, we're able, sir, to command all the effective black men as agents in the United States, close quote. So we got a national organization ready to aid the Union, ready to strike a blow for liberty, and they truly make a difference in the war. If we want to appreciate just how important African American soldiers were, sailors were, and the Emancipation Proclamation was in winning the war, we need only follow the general who wins the war, General Ulysses S. Grant. General Grant wrote a letter to President Lincoln in August of 1863, one month after Grant had captured Vicksburg, Mississippi, which Lincoln had called the key to victory. Grant had secured the key to victory on July 4, 1863, with the help of African American soldiers, sailors, guides, scouts, and spies. And Grant would write to President Lincoln, August 1863, and tell the president, "Quote: By arming the Negro, we have added a powerful ally." Close quote. I want you to pay close attention to the general's language. He does not say by freeing the Negro. He says, by army. And he does not say we've simply added more bodies to our army. He says we've added what? A powerful ally, Ray Lewis. Adrian Peterson. You get my point. Difference makers on the battlefield, that's what the general is saying. And in 1863, whether we're talking about battlefields in what was known as the Western Theater, along the Mississippi River Valley, along the Texas coast on battlefields in what was known as the Eastern Theater along the Atlantic coast. African-American soldiers not only demonstrated that they could and would fight, they demonstrated that they could and would fight well. President Lincoln would say to some of his political supporters who said they didn't support emancipation, he would say to them when they say, well, we don't want to fight for the Negro. That's not what we want to do. We were fighting for the Union." And Lincoln would tell them, I issued the proclamation on purpose to aid you in saving the Union. Lincoln would go on to explain that the Negro is like any other person. He needs a motivation to fight. And so by tying emancipation to preserving the Union, the Negro has a motivation to fight to preserve the Union. Lincoln's emancipation policy was for the purpose of preserving the Union. And Lincoln in December in his of 1863 in his annual message to congress would tell congress that his emancipation policy was working and that the employment of black soldiers had given the future of this war new hope he goes on to detail how it's working he says we've been able to open up the mississippi river we've separated the rebel territory into two parts with little or no communications between the two and as far as tested he says these colored soldiers, these African descent soldiers, have proven to be as good as soldiers as any. His Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, would, would uh, send his annual message to Congress and tell Congress that the slave has proved his manhood. Now, I, I want to comment on this because today, in, in, among many contemporary scholars, there's, a, there's actually an argument saying that the Negro enslaved man had his manhood taken away from him. There's a whole psychology of of the emasculated Negro when, in fact, if we tell the story of the Civil War accurately, we find that the men in government said that they proved their manhood. They were clearly men, men who stood and fought for their freedoms as artillerymen, infantrymen, cavalrymen, serving in all the combat arms. Indeed, by the middle of 1864, Well, also in this report, excuse me, also in this report, Stanton would point out that Texas had also been occupied by the Union. Now, how many of you have heard of Juneteenth? You've probably heard that the word of the Emancipation Proclamation did not get to Texas until June 19th, 1865, Correct. Well, in November of 1863, as a part of General Nathaniel Banks' Texas expedition, five African descent regiments took part. These regiments were out of Louisiana. They were called Corps d'Afrique regiments, Corps of Africa regiments, and they would capture the southern tip of Texas from Indianola to Brownsville. The word of the Emancipation Proclamation was in Texas as early as November 1863 in the person of conquering African-American soldiers. So why is it that we're hearing that the word didn't get there until June of 1865? Because this story is one of the best kept secrets in American history. However, it's in Stanton's War Department report in 1863, talking about the capture of the southern tip of Texas. This is well reported in the primary sources. It sounds like somebody's not using them. (laughs) If we want to appreciate again how important these African-American soldiers are, we need only follow the general who wins the war, General Ulysses S. Grant. Now, General Grant would be named General-in-Chief of the Army in March of 1864. When General Grant arrives in Washington, top general in the Army, March 18th, four, spring of 1864, there are zero, no United States Colored Troop regiments in the Army of the Potomac, the jewel of the Union Army, that are responsible for the defense of Washington, the principal army in the attempts to capture Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. General Grant would immediately begin transferring African American regiments from other regions of the country into the Virginia Theater. They would go into the defense of Washington as Company E of the 4th United States Colored Troops, organized here in Baltimore, Maryland, would go into the defenses of Washington, and join that Army of the Potomac. By the middle of 1864, African-American soldiers in Union uniform had captured and occupied a portion of every state in rebellion. African-American soldiers served in every branch of the Army. They were in the infantry foot soldiers, cavalry horse soldiers, artillery firing the cannons, musicians. In today's military, the soldier that does the job of the field musician or drummer boy, we call him a field or radio operator or communicator. The field musician and drummer boy did not have to know how to play music. He had to know what the series of beats meant for each command so that he could relay the commands of the commander. He was a signalman. Average age of a drummer boy during the Civil War was 15 years old. Youngest drummer boy to serve was a young African-American boy from Kentucky. He enlisted in the 114th United States Colored Troops at Camp Nelson, Kentucky in March of 1864 at the age of 8 years old. Elijah Mason of the 114th United States Colored Troops was an 8-year-old drummer boy and is the youngest soldier to served in, that served in the Civil War. African Americans served as pioneers. In today's military, Army, and Marine Corps, we call them combat engineers. In the Navy, we call them CBs. These are combat construction workers. Often required to go out in front of the army, build bridges, lay railroad tracks, roads. Very important to a fighting army are its combat construction workers. Now, I've heard some contemporary scholars, whenever they refer to African Americans doing manual labor as menial tasks. Now, I'm still trying to find out what a menial task in a combat zone really is. But to build fortifications is considered critical military work. Critical military work. In fact, if you graduated from West Point in the, ni- in the 19th century and you were one of the top graduates in your class, you became an engineer because building fortifications was the finest art of the military arts. It required the most, the most sophisticated minds. Menial task? I think not. African Americans also served in an integrated navy. 25% of the U.S. Navy was comprised of African American sailors. Now, during World War II, at the beginning of World War II, African-American sailors could only be stewards and cooks. In 1860s, during the Civil War, at 25% of the Navy, if the African-American sailors had only been stewards and cooks, you would not have had a fighting Navy. You'd have had a carnival cruise line. <laughs> they served in critical combat-related duties. They were, you had navigators, engineer officers, pilots, gunners, gunners mates, landsmen, seamen, of course, stewards, and cooks. Served in a myriad of important combat-related duties. The first African American to receive our nation's highest military honor was a sailor. His name was Robert Blake. He received the Medal of Honor on April 16, 1864, becoming the first African American to receive our nation's highest military honor. Robert Blake was one of seven African-American sailors to receive the Medal of Honor for Acts of Courage during the Civil War. There were 18 African-American soldiers who received the Medal of Honor for Acts of Courage during the Civil War, bringing our total to 25. Five African-American women were enlisted in the Navy as nurses and served aboard a hospital ship called the Red Rover. One of those women, Anna Stokes, lived a good long life and would receive a military pension. Those five nurses serving aboard the Red Rover were legally enlisted in the Navy. African American women who served as nurses with the Army like European American women who served as nurses with the Army were not enlisted. They were contracted through the US Sanitary Commission. We would call it the Red Cross today. Thousands of African American women would serve as nurses during the Civil War. We know of only one, however, who left us a written record. Her name, Susie King Taylor. Susie King Taylor was born and enslaved in Georgia. She grew up in Savannah, Georgia, where she learned to read and write in a secret school. At the age of 14 years old in 1862, she escaped from slavery in Georgia, made her way to Union lines at Hilton Head, South Carolina, and became a teacher in the camp. At 15 years old, she became a nurse with the 1st South Carolina Infantry of African descent, later renamed the 33rd United States Colored Troops. Susie King Taylor was a teenage nurse during the Civil War. And she is the only African-American nurse that we know of that left us a written record. Her memoirs were published in 1902. African-American women, these nurses, also earned an enviable reputation. As African-American soldiers survived of their wounds at a higher rate than any soldiers in the Civil War, credit these African-American nurses. Some women would disguise themselves as men and fight. If they did not get caught, we tend not to know their story. One African-American woman got caught, so we know a little bit about her. Her name was Lucy Carter, but instead of the generals telling Lucy Carter just to go away, they decided to hire Lucy Carter, employ her as a guide, scout, and spy. Lucy Carter was a guide, scout, and spy in the Virginia Theater. In that campaign to capture Richmond, arguably the most important campaign in the war, Lucy Carter was a guide, scout, and spy. But the most famous guide, scout, and spy in the Civil War was another African-American woman, a native of Maryland, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was a guide scout and spy in the Department of the South, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And in June of 1863, Harriet Tubman would become, and still is, the only American woman ever to lead U.S. soldiers on a raid. She led 300 men on a raid down the Kambayi River in South Carolina. The regiment was the 2nd South Carolina Infantry of African descent. Later redesignated as the 34th United States Colored Troops commanded by James Montgomery, Colonel James Montgomery, a Jayhawker out of Kansas. Harriet Tubman's raid in June of 1863 was highly successful. Destroyed the rice plantation infrastructure there along the Combahee River, emancipated over 700 enslaved persons. And after the raids in July of 1863, General Quincy Gilmore would order his paymaster to pay Harriet Tubman as, quote, a special agent, close quote. So I like to refer to her as simply Special Agent Harriet Tubman. (laughs) In the last year of the war, African Americans are in every major campaign. And they are playing a critical role in every major campaign, however, If you examine the history as reported by leading scholars over the last 100 years, you would be left with the impression that General Sherman had nothing to do with African-American soldiers. In fact, they will usually use a quote from Sherman, where Sherman actually tells his enemy, he tells Hood, a Confederate general, after Hood complains and said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for using our Negroes against us. Sherman writes back and says to Hood, quote, We have no Negro allies in this army. Not a single Negro soldier left Chattanooga with this army or is with it now, close quote. Sherman would write in his memoirs that the great question of his Atlanta campaign was one of supplies. One of supplies. And he talks about the need of, sup- of defending his supply lines from Nashville to Louisville, from Louisville. I mean, from Nashville to Atlanta, from Louisville to Nashville. And what does Sherman do? He assigns 13 African-American regiments to, to defend his supply lines. Now, this is a great question. Now, I used to be a Marine. Now, if, if a general says, Captain Jones, this is a great question, I call that a priority. <laughs> and I'm going to send the people I know who can accomplish the mission. You don't move an army that large and make sure they don't have supplies. You want to make sure they have supplies. So who did Sherman su- Assigned to guard his supply lines African American soldiers because he believed they could accomplish the mission because he believed as his friend General Granite said they were powerful allies also if you look at the the organizational structure of Sherman's army you will find that the 16th Army Corps Pioneer Division was African American United States Colored Troops you find that the 16th Army Corps Pioneer Battalion was United States Colored Troops you'd find that the 110th United States colored troops are with his army. However, I've seen many scholars say that the clear evidence of Sherman's racism is he took the uniforms away from the, 10th, the 110th United States colored troops. He took their uniforms away, and that's a fact. These soldiers, these African-American soldiers, were from northern Alabama, southern Tennessee, and northern Georgia, his area of operations. And he took their uniforms away from them, and if When he sent them in, they were no longer on scouting missions. Why? It's because you're in uniform when you're scouting. When you have your uniform off and you're gathering information, you're a spy. That's espionage. So what was Sherman supposed to do? Was he supposed to tell his enemy, oh, yes, we have Negro allies. They're my my spies. (laughs) Of course he's going to tell them, we don't use any Negroes. In fact, when you pay close attention to Sherman's Atlanta campaign, These fortifications are pristine today because there was never a battle. Where they built the fortifications, Sherman knew where every Confederate fortification was, and he navigated around them. There was no battle at the fortifications of Atlanta because Sherman's intelligence, his reports from his African American spies were so good that he navigated and took the soft underbelly of Atlanta. And we even have a photograph of an African-American corporal in Atlanta after Sherman occupied it. Surely Sherman had allies who were African-Americans because he knew they were powerful allies. Sherman would write into his memoirs, quote, I doubt whether the history of war can furnish more examples of skill and bravery than attended to the defense of the railroad from Nashville to Atlanta during the year 1864, close quote. Now all we need to do is find out who he's talking about is go to his order of battle. Who provided the security for his supply line. African American soldiers. What does Sherman say? Sherman says he doubts whether the history of warfare can furnish better examples of linebacking than Ray Lewis. You get my point. <laughs> you get my point. Sherman's Atlanta campaign is often his capture of Atlanta in the fall of in the late summer of 1864 is often considered that event that helps Lincoln get over the the hump and get reelected. However. His most, his most, his policy that was causing the most problems politically was his policy of arming African Americans. And the battle that changes the perspective of the nation on African American soldiers is the battle on New Market Heights Road, September 30th, 1860. It was a well fortified position seasoned soldiers from Lee's Army of Northern Virginia occupied the position. To attack the position, you had to go uphill. It was considered a fort that could not be taken. And the 4th United States Colored Troops from Baltimore, the 5th United States Colored Troops from Ohio would lead the assault. And though they suffered heavy casualties, they kept coming, they kept coming, and they took the fort. On the very next day, October 1st, 1864, General Robert E. Lee would lead the counterattack, and he would be sent back to Richmond, defeated. This was a huge event in the election of 1864, as African-American soldiers demonstrated what they were like on the battlefield for the public to see in the main arena, in that most important campaign, the campaign to capture Richmond. Major Christian Fleetwood of Baltimore, Maryland, would receive earned and received a Medal of Honor for his actions on September 30th, 1864. Major Fleetwood, and I'm calling him Major because he becomes a Major in the National Guard. During the Civil War, he was a Sergeant Major, but correct protocol requires me to call him a Major. Major Fleetwood would be one of 14 African American soldiers to earn and receive the Medal of Honor for acts of courage during that Petersburg-Richmond campaign. The Confederacy by... The early fall of 1864 begins to say, you know, we need to rethink this thing about, about colored troops, about African-American soldiers. And the governor of Louisiana, Henry Allen, would write a letter to the Secretary of War of the Confederacy, James Seton. Letters dated September 26, 1864. And in this letter, Governor Allen tells him that the time has come for us to put into the army every able-bodied Negro man as a soldier. Now, I want you to note that if he says the time has come, that means they weren't doing it before now. But he's saying the time has come for us to do it. And, but there's a debate on whether Negroes make good soldiers. Now, this letter is actually written about four days before that battle on Newmarket Heights Road. But Allen knew a lot about Negro soldiers out there in the West, and he tells the Secretary of War Confed- of the Confederacy, quote, we have learned from dearbought experience that Negroes can be taught to fight, close quote. No, he's saying, saying, they've been whipping us out here. We don't need a debate on whether Negroes can fight or not. They've been whipping us. We know what Ray Lewis can do. Let's bring him into our army. And by February of 1865, it was very clear that the Confederate legislature was going to pass legislation authorizing the recruitment of men of African descent also offering emancipation for their enlistment in General Lee's lobbying of the Confederate legislature he told him that the Negroes is eminently qualified physically to, to be a soldier he didn't think they could play quarterback well, linebacker but he, they, they're physically they're eminently qualified said Lee and, and he said that if we do this however we want to make sure that they get emancipation out of this and their families So this legislation was on the table, and it was pretty clear it was going to pass. So Martin Delaney would come to Washington, and he met with President Lincoln. Delaney tells President Lincoln in February of 1865 that that part of the Underground Railroad, known only unto ourselves, the Loyal League, the Legal League, can prevent enlistment into the Confederacy. But in order for the leadership to be most effective, the federal government needs to show its good faith by assigning us positions commensurate with our abilities in our contributions. Delaney proceeds to hand President Lincoln letters of recommendation. President Lincoln tells Delaney, I don't need any letters of recommendation from you. I know all about you. And Lincoln proceeds to write an order to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, ordering him to commission Martin Delaney as a Major of Infantry in the U.S. Army Regulars, commensurate with our contributions? Lincoln is making a statement by this commission He is commissioning him a major, a field-grade officer in the U.S. Army Regulars, not the U.S. Army Volunteers. In February of 1865, George Custer was a captain in the U.S. Army Regulars and a brigadier general in the U.S. Army Volunteers. Delaney is a major in the U.S. Army Volunteers. And Delaney would go on to be the only African-American officer to command his own regiment. He would command the 104th United States Colored Troops out of South Carolina. When Delaney was leaving the War Department, a newly commissioned Major, cannons were going off in Washington. He turns to the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, asks Mr. Secretary why the cannons going off in Stanton. and explains, Charleston, the cradle of secession, has been captured, Major. Charleston, the cradle of secession, was captured on February 18, 1865, by United States Colored Troops. It is an indisputable historical fact that American soldiers of African descent captured and occupied Charleston, South Carolina. That's headline news. Well reported in the newspapers of February 1865, but I challenge you to find in a single American history textbook today. The general responsible for signing only African-American troops to go into Charleston was William Tecumseh Sherman. And General Sherman not only does that, but it it takes two months before you even get a regiment of European-American troops to even show up near Charleston. So he makes it an indisputable historical fact. Now, I will say this, though. Many scholars will admit that African-American soldiers were the first to enter Charleston, but they'll say they really didn't capture it. They only occupied it. (laughs) They only occupied it. Charleston was siege for 587 days. The Union was trying to capture Charleston for years, and you're going to tell me that after you have chased the enemy off the hill, you didn't capture the hill? No, Charleston was captured. In fact, the same scholars that write that Charleston was only occupied and not captured say that that Atlanta was was captured. You know that the rebels ran, ran from Atlanta, so I guess Sherman only occupied it. That's not what Sherman wrote. He wrote he captured it because he's a military man. By the spring of 1865, 33% of the army in the the operation against Richmond is United States Colored Troops. Remember when General Grant became general in chief in the spring of 64, it was zero. One year later, it's 33%. He clearly wants his powerful allies on the battlefield in the most important campaign in the war to campaign to capture Richmond, Virginia. And he would position his powerful allies, his African-American soldiers, on the front lines in front of Richmond. Indeed, as we knew from the Battle of New Market Heights Road, September 30th, 1864, African-Americans had captured the closest position to Richmond to that day. And they're on the front lines. Now, I've read a number of scholars over the last 50, 60 years, African-American, European-American scholars, that explain why General Grant put African-American soldiers on the front lines this way. They say that General Grant was a racist who thought that African-American soldiers were his worst soldiers, so he was sending his worst soldiers in first so they could get killed. They were cannon fodder. He didn't value their lives, so he was sending them in first so they could get killed. That's how they explain why General Grant sent African-American soldiers in first, put them on the front lines. Now, that explanation in the context of US military doctrine is absolutely ridiculous. I spent 21 years in the United States Marine Corps. In the Marine Corps, we boast of going in first. Why? Because we're the best. In the Army, the 82nd Airborne goes in first. wire Because they're the best. 101st Airborne goes in first. wire Because they're the best. That's American military doctrine. And I challenge you to find a single American military theorist, a single American general who has ever written, we send our worst in first. It would be like finding a football or basketball coach. Coach Harbaugh say, well, you don't know, always send my worst players in first. No, he doesn't. He's trying to win the game. War is more important than football or Basketball. Grant isn't trying to die in front of Richmond. (laughs) Grant is trying to capture Richmond. And Grant would write in his memoirs that on April 3, 1865, the 25th Army Corps, under the command of General Godfrey Weitzel, captured Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. Ladies and gentlemen, the 25th Army Corps is the only Army Corps in the history of the United States made up of only African-American regiments. It is an indisputable historical fact that African-American soldiers captured and occupied the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. Now, that is indeed headline news, well reported in the newspapers of April 1865. Even the soldiers would write about this. This was a very meaningful event. My favorite story comes from Garland White. Garland White was actually born enslaved in Hanover County, Virginia. At the age of 11, Garland White was sold at a public auction in the city of Richmond to a Georgia planter by the name of Robert Toombs. Taken down to Georgia at 11 years old, Garland was separated from his mother and family. When when Robert Toombs was elected to the U.S. Senate, he brought Garland with him to Washington. When Garland gets to Washington, he decides he doesn't want to be any man's manservant. He attempts to escape. In his first attempt to escape, he makes it just no farther than across the district line into Silver Spring, Maryland. He is captured and brought back. In his second attempt to escape, he got the assistance of then-Senator from New York, William Seward. The let's wait for a military victory, William Seward. Seward helps Garland escape along the Underground Railroad. Garland makes his way to Canada. He returned to the United States to attend Oberlin Preparatory School in Oberlin, Ohio, After Oberlin Preparatory School, he became a pastor in the AME Zion Church. He was pastoring a church in Lafayette, Indiana in December of 1863 when the governor of Indiana, Oliver Morton, began recruiting for the 28th United States Colored Troops. Reverend White became a recruiting agent for the regiment. March of 1864, Reverend White enlisted as a private in the regiment. While a private in the regiment, he also performed the duties of the regimental chaplain. October 1864, officers in the regiment wrote a letter to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton requesting that Private Garland White be appointed their regimental chaplain. A few weeks later, they got a reply from Secretary Stanton, orders discharging Private Garland White from the U.S. Army Volunteers, commissioning him an officer in the U.S. Army Volunteers, and appointing him the regimental chaplain. On the morning of April 3rd, 1865, Chaplain White, Major United States Army Volunteers, led his regiment into Richmond. As he was marching down Main Street that early morning, in the lead of his regiment, an elderly woman spotted him. She went to a Union soldier and asked, Who is that young man leading those soldiers? He looks like my young Garland. That was Garland White's mother. His homecoming, his reunion, after almost 20 years of separation, was on the day he led the liberating force into Richmond as an officer in the United States Army. And we get his story from his own pen, initially published in the Christian Recorder on April 22nd, 1865. In the newspapers of April 1865, this was a big event. You could have read about it in New York newspapers, Philadelphia newspapers, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, but but my favorite headlines came from a Washington, D.C. newspaper. The Daily National Republican. Headlines on the evening of April 3rd, 1865 read, Extra Glorious Fall of Richmond, Captured by the Black Troops. Pretty clear who captured Richmond. (laughs) Well reported in the newspapers of April 1865 but I challenge you to find it in a single American history textbook today. I challenge you to find it in a single Civil War bestseller. In fact, I will argue that if you put this in your book, you're going to have a very difficult time getting it published by a major publishing company. This story remains one of the best kept secrets in American history. Indeed, if you've read a lot about the Civil War, I am certain that you've been left with the impression that the greatest army, the best army in the Civil War, was the Army of Northern Virginia, led by General Robert E. Lee. Lost cause has been effective. Here it says, Lee retreating. Well, Lee is retreating with his army of Northern Virginia from Petersburg and Richmond because he's been chased out by General Grant's army. And Grant pursuing, Grant is pursuing with African-American regiments as his lead regiment. He puts them on the front. So they're out in front chasing Lee's army. Now, Lee is trying to take his army of Northern Virginia south and west to western North Carolina so that he might join his army of Northern Virginia with the Confederate Army of Tennessee led by Confederate General Joseph E. Johnson. And together, those two armies might continue to prosecute the war. But in the early morning of April 9, 1865, a brigade of United States Colored troops, approximately 3,000 men, came up along the Lynchburg Road, and just south and west of a place called Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, they engaged Lee's Army of Northern Virginia in a skirmish. The fight lasted five hours, and at eight o'clock in the morning, Lee discerned that he could no longer continue to prosecute the war, and later that day would surrender to General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, because that is where he was stopped by African-American soldiers. There were 14 African American regiments present at Appomattox House, Virginia when Lee surrendered Grant on April 9th, 1865. Challenge you to find it in a single American history textbook. Challenge you to find it in a single book written on Appomattox House, Virginia and the surrender. This story remains one of the best kept secrets in American history. At one time in our history, we could say that this was a story that was falsified and suppressed by white supremacist or white delusionist. There's no race that's superior to the other, so if you think so, you're delusional. (laughs) But if you you read what they wrote and you took it in, then you might today, even as an African American, start telling a story that is not accurate. And the best example of that is the story of Juneteenth. (laughs) In May of 1865, the most famed corps in the Union Army is now the 25th Army Corps. Remember, they've captured Richmond. They've captured. They've stopped Lee's Army at Appomattox Court House, Virginia. And other elements of the 25th Army Corps had stopped uh, Johnston's army in, in North Carolina. This is a famed corps. So when the governor of Texas Governor Morrow, Francis Pendleton Morrow, says he's not going to accept the surrender. What does General Grant do? He decides to send the 25th Army Corps out to Texas (laughs) to augment the African-American soldiers who have already been out there. In late May, early June of 1865, they start arriving in Texas. By June 15th, there are over 20,000 African-American soldiers in Texas, and they would chase the governor of Texas and 10,000 Confederate soldiers in the early morning of June 15th, 1865, Out of the United States, across the Rio Grande, into Mexico, bringing Texas back into the Union by military conquest. On the very next day, June 16th, 1865, Old Glory, Stars and Stripes was raised over the state capital of Texas in Austin, Texas. And on June 16th, 1866, Texas of African descent would celebrate Juneteenth, not celebrating when they heard about the Emancipation Proclamation, but celebrating when Texas was brought back in the Union and the proclamation was enforced. June 16th is the accurate date, but this story has suffered from such propaganda that we have leading African-Americans in this country in 41 states who have passed legislation establishing June 19th as a holiday and stating that the slaves in Texas didn't know anything about the proclamation and when they heard about it, they found out from a general without doing anything on their own. No agency. So the Negroes were ignorant and the Negroes did nothing to free themselves. Dr. Du Bois warned us in the propaganda of history, that that's what they were trying to teach us. And that has been effective, and we see it in 41 states, and we are blessed to be in the state of Maryland, where your, your legislators knew better. <laughs> and so what did they do? They passed November 1st, 1864, because that is your day. <laughs> that's when slavery is abolished in the state of Maryland. Article 24 of your state constitution. And it was the voters, and I want to say, when I, I got to add this, it's the voters. Y'all know it, they had a vote for it. And the, the federal government said all the Union soldiers in Maryland get to vote. <laughs> and it won by 130-something votes. So you know who put them over the top, the Union soldiers. But you, you selected the correct day. Which, by selecting the correct day and telling the story accurately, then we can truly appreciate we can truly appreciate the story of African-Americans. Their story is the story of American patriots, of a disenfranchised enslaved population that answered a cry for help from the federal government. And by helping to save the Union and enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation, they freed themselves and their own families. Our memorial in Washington DC is called the African American Civil War Memorial. But I will often refer to it as simply an American memorial to American freedom fighters. It is because of these American freedom fighters that we honored our museum and memorial that we can all today in this country in good faith pledge our allegiance to an indivisible republic. They fought to keep this one nation under God. With liberty and justice for all, they fought expressly to extend the blessings of liberty to all Americans, regardless of race, creed, color, religion, or origin. These are American heroes, American freedom fighters. Their story is the story of a glorious march to liberty. Their story is our American story, a story of American patriots. Welcome to our story. Thank you. And uh, are there any questions? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I think there's a mic for the questions. Well, since you have all the documentation,
0: what are you writing your book, or
3: have you done it already? Well,
2: I have a first in a series that I, I brought tonight. I brought 12 copies tonight. First in a series called "For Light and Liberty. That's the title of the series. And uh, the first in is The Road to Emancipation. And in this series we deal with from 51 to 63 and really conceptually putting together what African Americans are doing in their agency and how sophisticated they are. One of the biggest challenges in telling the story is, uh, is getting over the idea that African Americans were not smart enough. <laughs> and that's really one of the biggest challenges because the genius is really quite huge in, in their understanding of the political realities. So in this first volume... Uh, which I, I, which I brought twelve copies of today. This first co- this first volume is uh, for light and liberty. Uh, the road to emancipation, and I we're continuing to do this and continuing research on just trying to get as many voices of the African Americans that made the history uh, out there. Yes.
0: But I'm also concerned that there's kind of a backlash. I mean, all of a sudden, you hear a lot about their Confederate, African Americans who fought for the Confederacy. There's a lot of kind of backlash against a lot of this. And um, you know, what do we do with all that? What do you make of that, as a historian? This notion that Confederate troops, the Confederacy was full of uh, black soldiers fighting for Confederacy, which my students kind of go, "Yeah, really?" And um, I mean, why? Well- why do we continue to try to suppress the story? You
4: think? Well,
2: one is that it, it's very difficult when you respect your grandfather and you found out he lied to you. Mm-hmm. To say, I know I built this building and on the campus it's named after him, but he was a liar. Mm-hmm. That's, real, that's real difficult. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult and I understand the, the cognitive dissonance of someone who's in that situation. I, I'm, I have empathy for them. Now, When it comes to the African-Americans with the Confederacy, notice how I just phrased that, with the Confederacy. The Confederate federal government hires thousands of African-Americans to work with the Confederate war effort. But they don't get paid. (laughs) The planter gets paid. Their so-called owner gets paid. So, And there's, there's sufficient records. There are thousands of them moving equipment for the Confederacy, so teamsters, building fortifications. Uh, critical military-type duties, but again, they don't get paid. Now, I, I'm for this. If those from Virginia, Alabama, across these, these, these uh, rep, former rebel, rebel states that actually impressed these slaves into service, if they want to call them soldiers, then this is what I recommend they do. They pass special legislation 150 years after the fact paying them Pay their descendants, and you will legitimize them as soldiers. If you're going to say they're soldiers, treat them like soldiers. So pay them. And let's do that retroactively, and I, I'm for that. I will support that. But, but for right now, we need to be accurate in the history. A soldier is a soldier. Slave is a slave. To say that the, the slaves were soldiers, I was like saying, well, you know, on the plantations, there were, he, he had a plantation with 200 slaves. The slaves on that plantation. No, he didn't. They were slaves. So these are slaves with the Confederate Army. We need to tell that story accurately. Now, I will say that there are some free people that you can actually track them that they do join the Confederacy. They do join the Confederate Army. There are some free people that we can track. In North Carolina is the easiest data because in North Carolina, you can read the state law before the war begins. And they said that African Americans could join the state militia. Free men could join the state militia as musicians, signalmen. They said in the law, and then so I went and tracked about nine individuals and found out they were indeed in the Confederate uh, Army. And of those nine, five of them were voters. They were voters. So we have to tell that story. We can tell the story. I'm, I'm digging it. the only problem that some of the people who say they were in the Confederate Army and wanted to use the slaves is you get into the thousands when it comes to the slaves. When you get into the free men, you get into maybe it's the hundreds. So the number is too small for them. What happened? Uh, they passed that legislation. Good, good question. They passed the legislation. Thank you for that question. They passed the legislation on uh, the Confederate legislature on March 13, 1865. Jeff Davis signs it into law on March 25, 1865, and eight days later, he's on the run. So they don't have much time to do any recruiting. Yeah, I'm... I have, you, you over here, sir? Yes, and, and then I'll come back. One, um, I, I want to thank you
4: and... Uh,
2: I should have asked him earlier. Uh, Yes, ma'am, Hugh. Oh, hi.
3: U.S. colored troops from across the United States descended some years after the war had been won for a celebration in Pennsylvania. And the, excuse me, but the date escapes me, but you can look it up. And um, they were part of this big celebration whereupon U.S. colored troops descended into this town in Pennsylvania in their regalia and their, mu- and their uniforms. Wow. And what was so striking about this was the reason why they did this was because they had been not allowed to participate in the Washington celebrations, which had been held in the nation's capital for soldiers of all races. Even then, after having served our country so valiantly, black men had been left out of that celebration. I did a story for the Baltimore Sun a few years ago, and I actually went to a celebration that was, uh, a few years ago, reenacting this, and people came from across the United States. It was spectacular. And then one other point I wanted to make was that in Frederick, Maryland, we have a U.S. Civil War medical museum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereupon you see some of the um, photographs, some of which you have here, uh, about um, some of these uh, African-American nurses, and there were African-American doctors who served during the Civil War. Yes. So those are just some things that uh, I want to add to your excellent presentation, and thank you. No,
2: uh, November 9th 1865, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Yes. You have the, the United States Colored Troops Review. But I do want to point out that one of the misnomers is that African Americans were prevented from being in the, in the parade in, in, uh, in May of 65 in Washington. That's not what happened. What happened was is that the 25th Army Corps was being sent to Texas. Just like Phil Sheridan, who became the, the, the command of the forces in Texas, he missed the parade too because he has still had work to do. In fact, when you read African Americans, what's very notable about that is that you can't find a single soldier from 1865 that complained about not being in Washington. Why? Because at that time, even those that weren't going out to Texas, those were in South Carolina, those who were in Georgia, those were who were in Florida, uh, we can go on through the rebel states, they liked the idea that they were the new law on the block. <laughs> This was occupation duty. Read them in the in the uh, in the Anglo-African or in the Christian recorder. They are happy to be in charge. They do begin to. By the time you reach September of 65, that's when you, you hear him saying, you know, it's about time for me to go home. I, I want to see my woman. You know, you, you read things like that in the fall of 60. Of, of now, also, uh, the one of the doctors that served, his name was Alexander Augusta. Alexander Guster was originally from Norfolk, Virginia. He got his medical degree from challenging the exam at Toronto University Medical School. He was quite a celebrity. He was commissioned by President Lincoln in October of 1862 as a captain. He would de- then come to Baltimore and work the induction of the 4th United States Colored Troops, the 7th United States Colored Troops, and he became the surgeon for the 7th United States Colored Troops and was a battlefield surgeon out in the Petersburg-Richmond campaign. And by the end of the war, he was Lieutenant Colonel Brevet uh, Alexander Augusta, so the highest-ranking African-American officer in the Civil War. Uh, yes, so come back to you. Yes. Okay. Uh,
4: I want to apologize for But I did. Want, I just wanted to make a comment. I am so happy that um, I ran into you on Tuesday, and you told me about this event. And it, it fills my heart with joy to know that the research was done, and it is done in a way that it cannot be disputed, at least the way that I, uh, in my world, the way that you have presented it. And, uh, and I'm forever grateful that you've uh, done that and,
2: been, uh, and presented it in, uh, in this manner. I thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. And I'm coming to the back, and then I'll come back up to you, sir. Yes. I just want to thank you for...
4: to D.C., to New to Zealand, and they were fascinated. But what I would like to know is, I would like to email you and get accepted because I do a Juneteenth June program, and I always argue about the date. But because I was stuck with not finding the information, when you said saying tonight, I'm standing there, like, I knew it. <laughs> So I would like to change. Because I went to school and I think the children, while they're still being educated, ought to be taught correctly. So we won't get to be my age and have to revisit the correct information. So I'm going to go inside. And
2: and I'll make sure I get you some primary sources. Thank you. Get some primary sources on it. Yes, sir.
4: I was uh, back in the 50s. I went on an excursion to Walwood, New Jersey somewhere on a bus and I picked up a magazine and it had an article on Lincoln. They were gonna kidnap Lincoln's body and hold it for ransom. And the family found out about it and they had his body retrieved from the website. And uh when Lincoln was assassinated and he didn't die instantly. He lingered an infection set in and it turned to you know, skinny black and blue. So they the undertakers didn't want to open a coffin the family insisted that would be open. They told him to put powder on the hands and his face and that. But uh, that was an amazing article. Okay. Yeah, so he, uh, they didn't get his body to hold for (laughs) ransom. Yes. Greetings. Um, If I may be allowed to say two things and then one last thing. Um, I'm under the belief that during the transatlantic slave trade, that Africans who physically couldn't withstand that, or mentally couldn't withstand that, passed away. Those who lived were the ones whose physical body could withstand that type of situation, and mentally could withstand that. When I look at athletes, we often, we don't make the connection that it's brain processing speeds that allow you to be able to move, to see and process. Right now, I feel like I felt in 1996 when I discovered that I had been hoodwinked and information was just not given to me. I thank you for bringing this information. Jean, thank you for inviting me. There's so many children that need to hear this, as well as adults. I've buried students before. They have no pride. These things gives us pride. It gives me pride. And thank you very much.
2: You're welcome. You're welcome. Yes, ma'am, and didn't you? I want to know,
3: the people that were soldiers in the war, were they first generation that came in on the docks of America? Since we did not immigrate yet, were they first generation that came in on the docks?
2: No, no. One of the things that's, that they are that they're very proud of, though, is in this, you get this, uh, you listen to them, that their fathers were soldiers captured as prisoners of war and brought here. The the class of men that fight as soldiers in the United States colored troops, they're a very proud military tradition. Um, In fact, once General Benjamin Butler, when he's talking to the Louisiana, a group of men from Louisiana, he asked them, how do you know your men will fight? And one of the the individuals that Butler described as uh, dark as the ace of spades and he was talking about Andre Caillou. Andre Caillou once boasted of being the blackest man in, uh, in New Orleans. Someone said, you, must, you, you have to be exaggerating. He said, no, I'm the blackest man in America, therefore I must be the blackest man in New Orleans. <laughs> but, but Caillou would say to Butler, when Butler queried, how do you know your men will fight? Caillou would say, quote, General, we come of a fighting race. Our fathers were captured in war and brought here as slaves and in hand-to-hand fights, too. General, we will fight and pardon me, but the only cowardly blood that flows through our veins is the white blood, close quote. And, and I want to point out that that's not Caillou telling us what he told Butler. That's what Butler writes that Caillou told him. So that's a report, not a boast. So
1: they were third
2: or fourth generation? Yes, many of them were. Some would be second uh, there are people who are brought over in the illegal slave trade who would come over. You also have some first generation like Wimba uh, and, and Wamba, actually that's their names on the official records, who joined the 74th United States Colored Troops. They were brought here uh, illegally, and they actually would be first generation. So you have first generation, you have second generation, you have third generation, you have fourth, you have fifth. So you, you have a, a line of it marching back. But the, the two that we can, we can track easily are the Congo, we, we often refer to as brothers, because they use the same last name, who are in the 74th United States Colored Troops, and there is a record of them. Even a letter, because Lieutenant Isabel writes a letter to the, no, the Anglo-African, uh, a newspaper out of New York, where he says that General, correction, Captain Pinchback, PBS Pinchback, an African-American officer, the company commander, was not going to enlist them, because he was afraid they didn't speak English well enough. And then somebody yelled out the drill commands, and they knew them all, so he said they brought him in. Yes, and then to you, ma'am. Yes. Yes, I just wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever thought about writing? I know, I know you have a book out, but have you ever thought about writing a curriculum? Yes. You know, I'm willing to work with someone who, who possesses that expertise. Yes. Thank you. I'm willing to work with someone who possesses that expertise, I, but I certainly would be. Yes.
1: Large, it is their school committee that identifies the content to go in the in the textbooks. My question is, how do we? And and it really means it's political, and it's through the publishers who will who will because it's so big. And they just make one textbook, and then that's the textbook for the country. But we need to really, I think, as a people or people who are interested approach publishers and say, no, that's not our textbook. We need, we need one, another one, or we don't approve of this content.
2: You know, in some ways, I've selected in this process to take on what I'm going to call the path of less resistance. <laughs> and what I mean by that is... What we at our museum have really been trying to do is work with teachers across the country to get them to augment their textbooks with primary sources. Our Teachers Institute this past summer was about using primary sources in the classroom. We got a grant from the Library of Congress. To put on our Teachers Institute, and of course, therefore, we use the Library of Congress. So, if you want to know what Lincoln had to say about colored troops, we recommend that you go that you in your classroom, you go to the Abraham Lincoln Papers at the Library of Congress, pull them up, and use your repository, and use that primary source in the classroom. Uh, we also worked with the National Archives in this uh, teaching documents in the classroom. So, we're, we're working with those those facilities that you have paid for to get this word out by augmenting. I call that the path of least least resistance. One is because you've already paid to set all this up. And and, and so we're just working, I'm going to use the term synergistically, to to, uh, augment the textbooks and get it right. The primary sources will help us tell this story. That's the beauty of this. There are some challenges in the primary sources when it gets to one of my favorite topics, which is intelligence. A lot of the documents dealing with the BMI, Bureau of Military Information, kind of the CIA of that day, and uh, other intelligence documents were not declassified uh, in the decades after the war, so they didn't come out in the OR. When the Army in 1925 became committed to arguing that the Negro was not suitable for combat roles, they began to be very actively involved in suppressing and falsifying history. And they sought to destroy that which would prove them as liars. They could not destroy that which was in the OR, but that which had not been released to the public, they could. So we still have that challenge. But the footprint of African-American intelligence observation is so big that the only way you can deal with it is not to write about it. Not to write about intelligence. You know when the first book written by a scholar on Civil War intelligence was published? 1995. 1995. It was avoided because African-Americans are the story in intelligence operations. It is the story. Abraham Galloway is the greatest spy in American history. But we can't tell it is with, without those sources except if we use two very valuable uh, leaders who have been maligned. Alan Pinkerton and Benjamin Butler. Butler. Now, if you are a Civil War buff, if you are a Civil War scholar even, you probably think that, that Benjamin Butler was a political general. Why? It's because that's what James McPherson wrote in Battle Cry of Freedom. He wrote in other, other things that he's written over the years. He said that Lincoln commissioned Butler as a political general because Lincoln was trying to get powerful Democrats to support the war. Butler joined the state militia of Massachusetts in 1839. In 1856, he was commissioned a brigadier general by Governor Gardner of Massachusetts. In 1856, he was sent to West Point, appointed by President Pierce so that he could learn what it is to be a general at West Point from other generals. He went to a professional school. Butler was a professional, not a political general. So why? Why does does James McPherson, the leading Civil War scholar, tell us that Butler was a political general when he was not? Because he maligns him. He makes sure that you don't pay attention to him. And if you don't pay attention to Butler, you will not pay attention to just how good African-American soldiers were. You will believe they can't play quarterback. But if you read Butler, you go like, oh, they can play quarterback. So this this is an act of suppression that we're dealing with in the 21st century. We still have scholars who have maligned the historical figures that we need to be reading. We need to be reading them, you need to read Butler. In detail, his, his letters from, from 61 to the end of the war are, are, are published, five volume set, read them. Read them, read Butler. Don't read McPherson on Butler, read Butler on Butler.
0: Okay, I think we're going to um, end in here. May, I, may I, make one, I make one?
2: I apologize. I put those books out, but, but uh, I still have to pay my publisher.
0: Uh-oh. <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Hari, thank $15. you. $15. Thank you so much. This was uh, truly educational, and I think you've inspired a lot of people to do some more research. So thank you for coming to Baltimore and being part of Gene Celebration.